Chapter Eight of Captain Sword and Captain Pen, a poem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Captain Sword and Captain Pen, a poem by Lee Hunt. Postscript containing some remarks on war and military statesmen, part two. The first thirty-five years of the nineteenth century have been rich in experiences of the sure and certain failure of all soldiership and Toryism to go heartily along in the cause of the many. There has been the sovereign instance of Napoleon Bonaparte himself, of the Allies after him, of Charles X, of Louis Philippe, albeit a schoolmaster, and lastly of this strange and most involuntary reformer, the Duke of Wellington who refused to do under Canning, or for principle's sake, what he consented to do when Canning died, for the sake of regaining power and of keeping it with as few concessions as possible. Canning perished because Toryism, or the principle of power for its own sake, to which he had been a servant, could not bear to acknowledge him as its master. His intellect was just great enough, as his birth was small enough, to render it jealous of him under that aspect. There is an instinct in Toryism which renders pure intellect intolerable to it, except in some inferior or mechanical shape, or in the flattery of voluntary servitude. But by a like instinct it is not so jealous of military renown. It is glad of the doubtful amount of intellect in military genius, and knows it to be a good ally in the preservation of power, and in the substitution of noise and show for qualities fearless of inspection. Is it an ascendancy of this kind, which the present age requires or will permit? Do we want a soldier at the head of us when there is nobody abroad to fight with? When international as well as national questions can manifestly settle themselves without him? And when his appearance in the seat of power can indicate nothing but a hankering after those old substitutions of force for argument, or at best of an authority for a reason, which every step of reform is hoping to do away? Do we want him to serve in our shops, to preside over our studies, to cultivate peace and good will among nations, wounding no self-love, threatening no social? There never was a soldier, purely brought up as such, and it is of such only I speak, and not of rare and even then perilous exceptions, men educated in philosophy like Epaminondas, or in homely household virtues and in citizenship like Washington but there never was a soldier such as I speak of, who did not more for the world than was compatible with his confined and arbitrary breeding. I do not speak, of course, with reference to the unprofessional part of his character. Circumstances, especially the participation of dangers and vicissitudes, often conspire with naturally good qualities to render soldiers the most amiable of men, and nothing is more delightful to contemplate than an old military veteran whose tenderness of heart has survived the shocks of the rough work it had been tried in, till twenty miserable sights of the war and horror start up to the imagination as a set-off against its attractiveness. But publicly speaking, the more a soldier succeeds, the more he looks upon soldiership as something superior to all other kinds of ascendancy, and qualified to dispense with them. He always ends in considering the flower of the art of government as consisting in issuing orders, and that of popular duty as comprised in obedience. 
cities with him are barracks and the nation is a conquered country he is at best but a pioneer of civilization when he undertakes to be the civilizer himself he makes mistakes that betray him to others even supposing him self-deceived napoleon though he was the accidental instrument of a popular reaction was one of the educated tools of the system that provoked it an officer brought up at a royal military college and in spite of his boasted legislation and his real genius such he ever remained he did as much for his own aggrandizement as he could and no more for the world than he thought compatible with it the same military genius which made him as great as he was stopped him short of a greater greatness because quick and imposing as he was in acting the part of a civil ruler he was in reality a soldier and nothing else and by the excess of the soldier's propensity aggrandizement by force he overtoppled himself and fell to pieces soldiership appears to have narrowed or hardened the public spirit of every man who has spent the chief part of his life in it who has died at an age which gives final proofs of its tendency and whose history is thoroughly known we all know what cromwell did to an honest parliament marlborough ended in being a miser and the tool of his wife even good-natured heroic nelson condescended to become an executioner at naples frederick did much for prussia as power but what became of her as a people a power either before the popular power of france even washington seemed not to comprehend those who thought that negro slaves ought to be freed in the name of common sense then what do we want with a soldier who was born and bred in circumstances the most arbitrary who never advocated a liberal measure as long as he could help it and who without meaning to speak presumptuously or in one's own person unauthorized by opinion is one of the merest soldiers though a great one that never existed without genius of any other sort with scarcely a civil public quality either commanding or engaging as far as the world in general can see and with no more to say for himself than the most mechanical clerk in office in what respect is the duke of wellington better fitted to be a parliamentary leader than the sir arthur wellesley of twenty years back or what has recast the habits and character of colonel wellesley of the east indies to give him an unprofessional consideration for the lives and liberties of his fellow-creatures and yet the duke of wellington it is said may after all be in earnest in his professions of reform and advancement if so he will be the most remarkable instance that ever existed of the triumph of reason over the habits of life and the experience of mankind i have looked for some such men through a very remarkable period of the world when an honest declaration to this effect would have set him at the top of mankind to be worshipped forever and i never found the glorious opportunity seized not by napoleon when he came from elba not by his allies when they conquered him not by louis philippe though he was educated in adversity i mean that he has shown himself a prince born of the most aristocratic kind and evidently considers himself as nothing but the head of a new dynasty when the duke of wellington had the opportunity of being a reformer of his own free will he resisted it as long as he could he opposed reform up to the last moment of its freedom from his dictation he declared that ruin would follow it and that the institutions of the country were perfect without it and that at the very least the less of it the better 
and for this enmity even if no other reason existed even if his new light were sincere the duke of wellington ought not to have the honor of leading reform it is just as if a man had been doing all he could to prevent another from entering his own house and then when he found that the bystanders would insist on his having free passage were to turn to them smiling and say well since it must be so allow me to do the honors of the mansion everybody knows that this proposal will be called by the bystanders and if the way in which greatness is brought up and spoilt gives it a right to a less homely style of rebuke as i grant it does still the absurdity of the duke's claim is not the less evident nor the error of it less provoking i can imagine but two reasons for the remotest possible permission of this glaring anomaly this government of anti-reforming reformers this hospital of sick guides for the healthy supported by involuntary contributions first sheer necessity which is ludicrous and second a facilitation of church reform through the lords and the bench of bishops the desirableness of which facilitation appears to be in no proportion to the compromise it is likely to make with abuses i have read i believe all the utmost possible things that can be said in its favor the articles for instance written by the times newspaper admirable as far as a rotten cause can let them be and when not afflicted by some portentous mystery of personal resentment and though i trust i may lay claim to as much willingness to be convinced as most men who have suffered and reflected i have not seen a single argument which did not appear to me fully answered by the above objection alone about the honor setting aside the innumerable convincing ones urged by the reasoners on the other side for as to any dearth of statesmen in a country like this it never existed nor ever can till education and public spirit have entirely left it there have been the same complaints at every change in the history of administrations and the crop has never failed let me state here that any appearance of personality in this book is involuntary public principles are sometimes incarnate in individual shapes and in attacking them the individual may be seemingly attacked where to eyes which look a little closer there is evidently no such intention i have been obliged to identify in some measure the power of the sword with several successive individuals and with the duke of wellington most because he is the reigning shape and includes all its pretensions but as an individual who am nothing except in connection with what i humanly feel i dare to affirm that i have not only the consideration that becomes me for all human beings but a flesh and blood regard for everybody and that i as truly respect in the noble duke the possession of military science of a straightforward sincerity and a valor of which no circumstances or years can diminish the ready firmness as i doubt the fitness of a man of his education habits and political principles for the guidance of an intellectual age i dislike toryism because i think it an unjust exacting and pernicious thing which tends to keep the interests of the many in perpetual subjection to those of the few but far be it from me in common modesty to dislike those who have been brought up in its principles and taught to think them good far less such of them as adorn it by intellectual or moral qualities and who justly claim for it under its best aspect in private life that ease and urbanity of behavior which implies an acknowledgment of its claims to respect even where those claims 
are partly grounded in prejudice. I heartily grant to the privileged class that, enjoying in many respects the best educations, they have been conservators of polished manners and of the other graces of intercourse. My quarrel with them is that the inferior part of their education induces them to wish to keep these manners and graces to themselves, together with superabundance, good for nobody, of all other advantages, and that thus, instead of being the preservers of a beautiful and genial flame, good for all, and in due season partakeable by all, they would hoard and make an idolatrous treasure of it, sacred to one class alone, and such as the diffusion of knowledge renders it alike useless and exasperating to endeavor to withhold. I will conclude this postscript with quotations from three writers of the present day, who may be fairly taken to represent the three distinct classes of the leaders of knowledge, and who will show what is thought of the feasibility of putting an end to war. The utilitarian, or those who are all for the tangible and material. The metaphysical, are those who recognize, in addition, the spiritual and imaginative wants of mankind. And lastly, in no offensive sense, the men of the world, whose opinion will have the greatest weight of all with the incredulous, and whose speaker is a soldier to boot, and a man who evidently sees fair play to all the weaknesses as well as the strengths of our nature. The first quotation is from the venerable Mr. Bentham, a man who certainly lost sight of no existing or possible phase of society, such as the ordinary disputants on this subject contemplate. I venture to think him not thoroughly philosophical on the point, especially in what he says in reproach of men educated to think differently from himself. But the passage will show the growth of opinion in a practical and highly influential quarter. Nothing can be worse, says Mr. Bentham, than the general feeling on the subject of war. The church, the state, the ruling few, the subject many, all seem to have combined in order to patronize vice and crime in their very widest sphere of evil dress a man in particular garments, call him by a particular name, and he shall have authority on diverse occasions to commit every species of offense, to pillage, to murder, to destroy human felicity, and for so doing he shall be rewarded. Of all that is pernicious in admiration, the admiration of heroes is the most pernicious, and how delusion should have made us admire what virtue should teach us to hate and loathe is among the saddest evidences of human weakness and folly. The crimes of heroes seem lost in the vastness of the field they occupy. A lively idea of the mischief they do, of the misery they create, seldom penetrates the mind through the delusions with which thoughtfulness and falsehood have surrounded their names and deeds. Is it that the magnitude of the evil is too gigantic for entrance? We read of twenty thousand men killed in battle with no other feeling than that it was a glorious victory. Twenty thousand, or ten thousand, what reck we of their sufferings? The hosts who perished are evidence of the completeness of the triumph, and the completeness of the triumph is the measure of merit, and the glory of the conqueror. Our schoolmasters, and the immoral books they so often put into our hands, have inspired us with an affection for heroes, and the hero is more heroic in proportion to the numbers of the slain. Add a cipher. Not one iota is added to our disapprobation. Four or two figures give us no more sentiment of pain than one figure, while they add marvelously to the grandeur 
and splendor of the victor let us draw forth one individual from those thousands or tens of thousands his leg has been shivered by one ball his jaw broken by another he is bathed in his own blood and that of his fellows yet he lives tortured by thirst fainting famishing he is but one of the twenty thousand one of the actors and sufferers in the scene of the hero's glory and of the twenty thousand there is scarcely one whose suffering or death will not be the centre of a circle of misery look again admirers of that hero is not this wretchedness because it is repeated ten ten hundred ten thousand times is not this wretchedness the period will surely arrive when better instructed generations will require all the evidence of history to credit that in times deeming themselves enlightened human beings should have been honored with public approval in the very proportion of the misery they caused and the mischiefs they perpetrated they will call upon all the testimony which incredulity can require to persuade them that in past ages men there were men too deemed worthy of popular recompense who for some small pecuniary retribution hired themselves out to do any deeds of pillage devastation and murder which might be demanded of them and still more will it shock their sensibilities to learn that such men such men destroyers were marked out as the eminent and the illustrious as the worthy of laurels and monuments of eloquence and poetry in that better and happier epoch the wise and the good will be busied in hurling into oblivion are dragging forth for exposure to universal ignominy and obliquy many of the heads we deem heroic while the true fame for the perdurable glories will be gathered around the creators and the diffusers of happiness deontology our second quotation is from one of the subtlest and most universal thinkers now living thomas carlyle chiefly known to the public as a german scholar and the friend of goethe but deeply respected by other leading intellects of the day as a man who sees into the utmost recognized possibilities of knowledge see what he thinks of war and the possibility of putting an end to it we forget whether we got the extract from the edinburgh or the foreign quarterly review having made it some time back and mislaid the reference and we take a liberty with him in mentioning his name as the writer for which his zeal in the cause of mankind will assuredly pardon us the better minds of all countries observes mr carlyle begin to understand each other and which follows naturally to love each other and help each other by whom ultimately all countries in all their proceedings are governed late in man's history yet clearly at length it becomes manifest to the dullest that mind is stronger than matter that mind is the creator and shaper of matter that not brute force but only persuasion and faith is the king of this world the true poet who is but an inspired thinker is still an orpheus whose lyre tames the savage beasts and evokes the dead rocks to fashion themselves into palaces and stately inhabited cities it has been said and may be repeated that literature is fast becoming all in all to us our church our senate our whole social constitution the true pope of christendom is not that feeble old man in rome nor is its autocrat the napoleon the nicholas with its half million even of obedient bayonets such autocrat is himself but a more cunningly devised bayonet and military engine 
in the hands of a mightier than he the true autocrat or pope is that man the real or seeming wisest of the last age crowned after death who finds his hierarchy of gifted authors his clergy of assiduous journalists whose decretals written not on parchment but on the living souls of men it were an inversion of the laws of nature to disobey in those times of ours all intellect has fused itself into literature literature printed thought is the molten sea and wonder-bearing chaos in which mind after mind casts forth its opinion its feeling to be molten into the general mass and to be worked there interest after interest is engulfed in it or embarked in it higher higher it rises round all the edifices of existence they must all be molten into it and anew bodied forth from it or stand unconsumed among its fiery surges woe to him whose edifice is not built of true asbest and on the everlasting rock but on the false sand and the driftwood of accident and the paper and parchment of antiquated habit for the power or powers exist not on our earth that can say to that sea roll back or bid its proud waves be still what form so omnipotent an element will assume how long it will welter to and fro as a wild democracy a wilder anarchy what constitution and organization it will fashion for itself and for what depends on it in the depths of time is a subject for prophetic conjecture wherein brightest hope is not unmingled with fearful apprehensions and awe at the boundless unknown the more cheering is this one thing which we do see and know that its tendency is to a universal european commonwill that the wisest in all nations will communicate and cooperate whereby europe will again have its true sacred college and council of amethyctons wars will become rarer less inhuman and in the course of centuries such delirious ferocity in nations as in individuals it already is may be proscribed and become obsolete forever my last and not least conclusive extract for it shows the actual hold which these speculations have taken of the minds of practical men of men out in the world and even soldiers is from a book popular among all classes of readers the bubbles from the brunens of nassau written by major sir francis head what he says of one country's educating another by the natural progress of books and opinion and of the effect which this is likely to have upon governments even as remote and unwilling as russia is particularly worthy of attention the author is speaking of some bathers at whom he had been looking and of a russian prince who lets us into some curious information respecting the leading strings in which grown gentlemen are kept by despotism for more than half an hour i had been indolently watching this amphibious scene when the landlord entering my room said that the russian prince g in wished to speak to me on some business and the information was scarcely communicated when i perceived his highness standing at the threshold of my door with the attention due to his rank i instantly begged he would do me the honour to walk in and after we had sufficiently bowed to each other and that i had prevailed on my guest to sit down i gravely requested him as i stood before him to be so good as to state in what way i could have the good fortune to render him any service the prince very briefly replied that he had called upon me considering that i was the person in the hotel best capable he politely inclined his head of informing him by what route it would be most advisable for him to proceed to london 
it being his wish to visit my country in order at once to solve this very simple problem i silently unfolded and spread out upon the table my map of europe and each of us as we leant over it placing a forefinger on or near wiesbaden our eyes being fixed upon dover we remained in this reflecting attitude for some seconds until the prince's finger first solemnly began to trace its route in doing this i observed his highness hand kept swerving far into the netherlands so gently pulling it by the thumb towards paris i used as much force as i thought decorous to induce it to advance in a straight line however finding my efforts ineffectual i ventured with respectful astonishment to ask why travel by so uninteresting a route the prince at once acknowledged that the route i had recommended would by visiting paris afford him the greatest pleasure but he frankly told me that no russian not even a personage of his rank could enter that capital without first obtaining a written permission from the emperor those words were no sooner uttered than i felt my fluent civility suddenly begin to coagulate the attention i paid my guest became forced and unnatural i was no longer at my ease and though i bowed strained and endeavoured to be if possible more respectful than ever yet i really could hardly prevent my lips from muttering aloud that i had sooner die a homely english peasant than live to be a russian prince in short his highness's words acted upon my mind like thunder upon beer and moreover i could almost have sworn that i was an old lean wolf contemptuously observing a bald ring rubbed by the collar from the neck of a sleek well-fed mastiff dog however recovering myself i managed to give as much information as it was in my humble power to afford and my noble guest then taking his departure i returned to my open window to give vent in solitude as i gazed upon the horse-bath to my own reflection upon the subject although the petty rule of my life has been never to trouble myself about what the world calls politics a fine word by the by much easier expressed than understood yet i must own i am always happy when i see a nation enjoying itself and melancholy when i observe any large body of people suffering pain or imprisonment but of all sorts of imprisonment that of the mind is to my taste the most cruel and therefore when i consider over what immense dominions the emperor of russia presides and how he governs i cannot help sympathizing most sincerely with those innocent sufferers who have the misfortune to be born his subjects for if a russian prince be not freely permitted to go to paris in what a melancholy state of slavery and debasement must exist the minds of what we call the lower classes as a sovereign remedy for this lamentable political disorder many very sensible people in england prescribe i know that we ought to have resource to arms i must confess however it seems to me that one of the greatest political errors england could commit would be to declare or to join in declaring war with russia in short that an appeal to brute force would at this moment be at once most unscientifically to stop an immense moral engine which if left to its work is quite powerful enough without bloodshed to gain for humanity at no expense at all its object the individual who is i conceive to overthrow the emperor of russia who is to direct his own legions against himself who is to do what napoleon had at the head of his great army failed to effect is the little child who lighted by the single wick of a small lamp 
sits at this moment perched above the great steam press of the penny magazine feeding it from morning till night with blank papers which at almost every pulsation of the engine comes out stamped on both sides with engravings and with pages of plain useful harmless knowledge which by making the lower orders acquainted with foreign lands foreign productions various states of society etc tend practically to inculcate glory to god in the highest and on earth peace good will towards men it has already been stated that what proceeds from this press is now greedily devoured by the people of europe indeed even at berlin we know it can hardly be reprinted fast enough this child then this sweet little cherub that sits up aloft is the only army that an enlightened country like ours should i humbly think deign to oppose to one who reigns in darkness who trembles at daylight whose throne rests upon ignorance and despotism compare this mild peaceful intellectual policy with the dreadful savage alternative of going to war and the difference must surely be evident to every one in the former case we calmly enjoy first of all the pleasing reflection that our country is generously imparting to the nations of europe the blessing she is tranquilly deriving from the purification of civilization to her own mind far from wishing to exterminate we are gradually illuminating the russian peasant we are madly throwing a gleam of light upon the fetters of the russian prince and surely every well-disposed person must see that if we will only have patience the result of this noble temperate conduct must produce all that reasonable beings can desire bubbles from brunens of nassau page one sixty four by the penny magazine our author means of course not only that excellent publication but all cheaply diffused knowledge all the tranquil enlightening deeds of captain pen in general of whom it is pleasant to see the gallant major so useful a servant the more so from his sympathies with rank and aristocracy but pen will make it a matter of necessity by and by for all ranks to agree with him in vindication of their own wit and common sense and when once this necessity is felt and fastidiousness shall find out that it will be considered absurd to lag behind in the career of knowledge and the common good the cause of the world is secure may princes and people alike find it out by the kindliest means and without further violence may they discover that no one set of human beings perhaps no single individual can be thoroughly secure and content or enabled to work out his case with equal reasonableness till all are so a subject for reflection which contains we hope the beneficent reason why all are restless the solution of the problem is cooperation the means of solving it is the press if the greeks had had a press we should probably have heard nothing of the inconsiderate question which demands why they with all their philosophy did not alter the world they had not the means they could not command a general hearing neither had christianity come up to make men think of another's wants as well as of their own accomplishments modern times possess those means and inherit that divine incitement may every man exert himself accordingly and show himself a worthy inhabitant of this beautiful and most capable world end of section eight end of captain sword and captain pen a poem by lee hunt